Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. In the classic tradition of mystery and suspense, Playhouse Video presents Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's The Hound of the Baskervilles. Mr. Holmes, you're the one man in all England who can help me. Well, won't you sit down? Thank you. I'm in mortal fear Sir Henry's life will be stuffed out. Why, what makes you think that? I have information which leads me to believe that for centuries past, every Baskerville who's inherited the estates has met with a violent and sudden death. And certain death is just around the corner. Now, will you please tell me what this is all about? Dr. Mortimer bringing me here to see you. This letter. It's about you, Sir Henry. Your inheritance, Baskerville Hall. And Dr. Mortimer thinks that it might not be safe for you to go down there. Safe? On account of a hound. A wild, supernatural monster that has cursed you Baskervilles for the last two or three hundred years. And it's up to Sherlock Holmes to solve the mystery. About 50 yards from where Sir Charles fell dead were footprints. A man's or a woman's? Mr. Holmes. They were the footprints of a gigantic hound. Murder, my dear Watson. Refined, cold-blooded murder. The only way is to catch him red-handed. To catch him in such a way that there's no escape. No alibi. That means gambling with Sir Henry's life. But you can't... Gambling to save his life. It's Basil Rathbone as Sherlock Holmes and Nigel Bruce as Dr. Watson together in their first mystery ever, The Hound of the Baskervilles. Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to cover The Hound of the Baskervilles from 1939. The studio was 20th Century Fox. Release date was March 31st, 1939. The running time, 80 minutes, and of course, it was in black and white. I'm not sure about the budget and nor the box office because they didn't keep exact totals back then. Leonard Maltin from his excellent classic movie guy gives the film three out of four stars. His quick little synopsis is, Basil Rathbone makes his first appearance as Sherlock Holmes in this grade A production based on Arthur Conan Doyle's story about a mysterious murders taking place at a creepy mansion on the moors. Though Holmes is off screen for a good part of the story. The movie is fairly faithful to the source material with the now classic closing line from the cocaine user Holmes, Quick Watson, the needle. (laughs) And I think Malton meant heroin, but that's okay. Rotten Tomatoes gives it 91% fresh from 11 reviews. So I first saw this version of The Hound of the Baskervilles in my 7th grade English class and immediately started my fondness of Sherlock Holmes, and most of the class kind of seemed disinterested in in an old, you know, black and white movie, but I was totally enamored with the story, along with Basil Rathbone as Holmes and Nigel Bruce as Dr. Watson. Baskervilles is the first Holmes movie starring uh, Rathbone and Bruce, and because it became such a huge hit, 13 more Sherlock Holmes movies were made starring this duo. So I do own a DVD set of all 14 films which have been faithfully restored by the UCLA Film Preservation Archive. I highly recommend picking this up if you don't have it. Alright, let's get into the main cast. Of course, you have Basil Rathbone who plays Sherlock Holmes. And prior to becoming an actor, Rathbone was in the British military during World War I. He was actually in the same regiment as future actors Claude Rains, Ronald Coleman, and Herbert Marshall. Rathbone eventually became a captain and was a fencing champion in the British Army. His fencing abilities definitely helped him later in various acting roles, including The Adventures of Robin Hood, where he actually taught swordsmanship to Errol Flynn in Tyrone Powers. After the war, Rathbone started theater acting through most of the early 1920s before going into film. He eventually made a name for himself in the 1930s, usually playing suave villain roles in costume dramas or those swashbuckler-type films. Some of his better-known films prior to landing the reoccurring Sherlock Holmes role include David Copperfield, Anna Karina, Captain Blood, Romeo and Juliet, A Tale of Two Cities, The Adventures of Robin Hood, of course with Errol Flynn, and the third and excellent Frankenstein movie called Son of Frankenstein, playing Baron Wolf on Frankenstein. 
Rathbone also starred as the Holmes character on the radio ad- adaptations from 1939 through 46, which coincided with the film releases. Nigel Bruce plays Dr. Watson, and like Rathbone, Bruce was also in the British Army during World War I and was wounded in battle after being shot in the legs with a machine gun, and he needed a full year to recover. He later re-enlisted, serving a few more years in the Army. So after the Army, Bruce started theater acting just like Rathbone for the next decade before moving to Los Angeles in 1934 in an attempt to get into films. While Rathbone was sort of typecast in villain roles, Bruce was typecast in sort of harmless, bumbling, scatterbrain roles. However, it was his role as Dr. Watson that Bruce would be best known for, though he appeared in two successful Hitchcock films in the early 1940s, Rebecca and Suspicion. The director was Sidney Lanfield, and Lanfield was a jazz musician before becoming a film director. Interestingly enough, prior to The Hound of the Baskervilles, Lanfield mostly directed romance and comedy films. So, of course, the author was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, but the screenwriter for this particular adaptation is Ernest Pascal. Doyle was the author and creator of the Sherlock Holmes character. Doyle was actually a physician before becoming a writer, and so while most think there were many Sherlock Holmes novels, Doyle only wrote four proper novels based around Holmes. However, he published over 50 short stories with Holmes and Watson. So the Holmes character was based on Doyle's college professor named Joseph Bell. Bell had the gift of keen observations and being able to pick up on personal traits of strangers better than the average person. Bell was considered a pioneer in forensic science, which eventually was used to assist in criminal investigations. In the early days of police work, science was almost never used. Doyle wrote about many other things in addition to Sherlock Holmes, and was often frustrated by the popularity of just his Holmes stories as opposed to his other works. He often thought about just killing off the Holmes character, but his mother persuaded him not to. Instead, he demanded huge sums from his publishers to keep writing Holmes stories which they agreed since they sold so well. This made Doyle one of the highest paid authors of his era. All right, let's get right into the movie. The intro is very much like a universal monster movie. Plus, you get many of the actors who actually appeared in those monster movies, like, of course, Basil Rathbone, Lionel Atwell, and John Carradine. You get an intro card which says, 1889. In all England, there is no district more dismal than the vast expanse of primitive wasteland the moors of Dartmoor in Devonshire. So then we see an older man running in terror in the foggy night as you hear howling noises in the background. He collapses while running, dead from a heart attack. A vagrant-looking man sees the dead man and decides to take whatever valuables he could find off the dead guy. However, the vagrant is scared off by another man calling out and runs away without taking the dead man's pocket watch. The man is discovered by the butler of the estate nearby, and that's John Carradine, and also his wife. The dead man, as we find out, was named Sir Charles Baskerville. He's the head of the estate near where his body was found. During the coroner's inquest, the on-site Dr. Mortimer, which is Lionel Atwill, gave the cause of death as heart failure. However, others in attendance believe it was murder, even though there were no marks or attributes to say that Sir Charles was murdered by someone or something. Sir Henry Baskerville, which is played by Richard Green, is the heir who will take over the Baskerville title and estate. So then we cut to Holmes and Watson discussing the case. Oh, Mr. Holmes, while you were out, a gentleman called to see you and left this. He asked you to give it to me? Oh, no, sir. He just left it by mistake, I imagine. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dr. Mortimer? He didn't leave his name, sir. No, it's here on the stick, Mrs. Hudson. Oh, is it? I didn't notice. Do you know any Dr. Mortimer, Watson? No. What did he want? He didn't say, sir. What do you make of it, Watson? Why should I make anything of it? The fellow came to see you. Ah, but what kind of a fellow? Let me hear you reconstruct him from his walking stick by our usual method of elementary observation. Well, I should say that Dr. Mortimer is a successful man. Well esteemed. Good. Excellent. I should say that he does a great deal of his visiting on foot because the iron ferrule is is worn down. Perfectly sound. Let's have a look at this inscription. From his friends of the CCH. CCH. I should say that's the something or other hunt. Really, Watson, you've excelled yourself. Has oh, anything escaped me? Almost everything, my dear fellow. Huh? A present to a doctor, I'd say, is more likely to come from a hospital than a hunt. 
And when the letters CC are placed before the hospital, the name Charing Cross Hospital rather obviously presents itself. Oh, you, you may be right. Furthermore, I'd say that Dr. Mortimer had a small practice in the country and was the owner of a dog. How can you tell that? Quite simple. From the teeth marks. Look, you can see for yourself. A rather large dog, I'd say. And unless I'm mistaken, Dr. Mortimer will call on us again in a few moments. Rubbish, Holmes. Rubbish. How the devil can you deduce that? Well, as he left his stick, isn't it reasonable to presume that he'll come back and get it? Dr. Mortimer, sir. Mr. Holmes. Uh, yes, come in, Dr. Mortimer. I took the liberty of calling upon and you. And left your stick. Oh, so I did. <laughs> Thank you so much. A presentation, I see. Yes, sir, from Charing Cross Hospital. Uh, this is my friend, Dr. Watson. Of course. How do you do, sir? Mr. Holmes, you're the one man in all England who can help me. Well, won't you sit down? Thank you. A friend of mine is in grave danger. May I inquire his name? Sir Henry Baskerville, heir to the estate of Baskerville Hall. I'm in mortal fear Sir Henry's life will be snuffed out. Why, what makes you think that? I have information which leads me to believe that for centuries past, every Baskerville who's inherited the estates has met with a violent and sudden death. But as I recall it, Sir Charles died from natural causes, heart failure. Apparently, that was the verdict of the coroner in which I, as Sir Charles' physician, concurred. But there was one point which I kept back from the police, from everybody. Yes? About 50 yards from where Sir Charles fell dead were footprints. A man's or a woman's? Mr. Holmes, they were the footprints of a gigantic hound. A hound? Well, why didn't you report it? Not a soul would have believed it. During the night it rained, and in the morning the marks were completely obliterated, but I saw them as clearly as I see you. And then, a few days ago, as one of the executors of the estate, I found this. This old document. Legend of the Hound of the Baskervilles. Uh, let me read it to you, Mr. Holmes. It's quite short. I won't bore you, I promise. Yes, please, go on. In the time of the Great Rebellion, about uh, 1650, Baskerville Manor was held by Hugo of that name, a profane and godless man. One Michaelmas, this Hugo stole down upon a neighboring farm and carried off the daughter of the house. He locked her in an upper chamber, and while Hugo and his friends were carousing, as was their nightly custom... Such a cuddlesome little wench never existed before, I swear. Cheeks soft as velvet, a form so wondrously rounded. Tell us more. What happened then? Where was I? Her form, you were saying. Oh, yes. No need to cry out, I told her. Hugo will not hurt you. <laughs> with that, I whisked her up on my saddle, covered her with my cloak, and we were off like the wind. You brought her here? To the manor? Where is she? Go fetch her, Hugo. He's a set and done, eh, Hugo? How can he fetch her if she isn't here? Oh, she is, eh? Come on, I'll show you. May we come in, my sweet? These drunken sots would give Hugo the... There is no good. Gone! Gone! my What ails him? Hugo! What's wrong, sir? She's gone, the wench! Well, don't stand there gaping. Go bring my mare. What's wrong? I've never seen him in such a rage. Where's he gone? Let's follow him. Let's go, Roderick. Farewell. Come on, Matthew. Hold the stirrup, you blockhead. I'll give my soul to the devil for that wench. <laughs> Did you hear how he fetched his soul to the devil for that wench? Well, may he find her and wed her. Then the devil will have his soul. <laughs> On and on they rode, until suddenly they came upon the body of the girl. Dead. 
Then, from just over a rise, they heard sounds so hideous that the blood froze in their veins. And looking up, they beheld... Before we could get at him, Sir Hugo was dead. His body literally torn to shreds. Such is the history of the hound that has cursed the Baskerville family ever since. Many having been unhappy in their deaths, that have been sudden, violent, and mysterious. Well, Mr. Holmes. Interesting. Very interesting. What do you think? I don't know. But Sir Henry's arriving from Canada tomorrow. Please understand my dilemma, my responsibility. I was Sir Charles' best friend. My duty is to protect that boy. If I should take him down there to Baskerville Hall and anything happened to him... Now what I'd suggest, Dr. Mortimer, is that when Sir Henry arrives, you bring him here. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Holmes. You don't know what a load you've taken off my mind. Good night, Dr. Watson. Good night, sir. You've left your stick again. Oh, thank you. By the way, Dr. Mortimer, you have a dog. I have no dog. Then how do you account for these marks? Evidently, the teeth marks of a dog. I used to have a dog, a small spaniel. But it died. Good night. Good night. Well, Holmes, what do you make of it? Do you think there's anything in it? Good heavens, you're not going to start scratching on that infernal thing, are you? The back and forth between Rathbone and Bruce are what makes these films so enjoyable to watch. Even though the films are dramas, Bruce especially portrays the Watson character in a lighthearted manner, making him very likable. And you believe Rathbone is really Sherlock Holmes. And while he's always one step ahead, he is definitely a perfect yin to Bruce's yang. So anyway, you get the backstory in the last clip of The Baskerville's Curse. Sir Henry arrives in London on a boat from Canada. He is picked up by Dr. Mortimer, and as they are taken by horse and carriage to his hotel, a rock with a note attached is thrown into the carriage which says, As you value your life or your reason, keep away from the moor. So he takes the note to Holmes to figure out the meaning. And if you didn't know, a moor is just open land. Holmes instructs Dr. Mortimer and Sir Henry to go back to their hotel. Holmes and Watson decide to follow them to see if anyone tries to accost Sir Henry during their walk to the hotel. Holmes' intuition was correct, as it always is, as there was a mystery person about to shoot Sir Henry from a carriage. Holmes alerts everyone of the potential assassination attempt before any shots are fired and the horse and the carriage ride off. Holmes then instructs Watson to accompany Sir Henry and Dr. Mortimer back to the Devonshire estate. Holmes will stay in London for now. Interestingly enough, the entryway near the stairwell of the Baskerville estate looks almost the same as the Frankenstein mansion in Son of Frankenstein. Of course, again, there's that Rathbone and Atwell connection. During the first night at the estate, Sir Henry and Watson notice a light out across the countryside. They notice the butler seemingly signaling someone through flashes of a candle in an upstairs window. Watson and Sir Henry investigate the mysterious light in the countryside only to have a giant rock thrown at them by the vagrant from the beginning of the film. So the viewer knows it's the vagrant, but Watson and Sir Henry do not. They just know that somebody ran away. While walking back to the estate, they hear the hounds howling in the distance. So as Leonard Maltin in his quick synopsis said earlier, there isn't a lot of scenes with Sherlock Holmes in this first half of the film. It's really Dr. Watson's film in the beginning, with him handwriting letters to Holmes with updates on his findings. In the meantime, Sir Henry meets with his neighbors, the Stapletons. The woman Beryl, played by Wendy Berry, is smitten with Sir Henry, not surprisingly, and he's interested in her as well. Watson and Sir Henry are invited to their place for dinner. Watson is suspicious of Beryl's stepbrother, John, played by Morton Lowry. The dinner is fairly uneventful until we discover that Dr. Mortimer and his wife are into the occult and decide to perform a seance to contact the deceased Sir Charles. Sir Charles, can you speak to us? Let us know if you're present. There are things that only you can explain. Speak to us, Sir Charles, if you're here. 
There are things that only you can tell us. Sir Charles, can you speak to us? Let us know if you're present. There are things that only you can tell us. Speak to us, Sir Charles, if you're here. There are things that only you can explain. That sound. I've heard it before. It's nothing. Nothing but the wind. Or a bittern. I was telling Dr. Watson only yesterday about it. Sir Charles? What happened that night? What was it you feared? Tell us, Sir Charles, of all the weird, terrible things that have happened on the moor. Listen. There it is again. Oh, I can't stand it. Will somebody put on the lights, please? I tell you, it's nothing. Nothing but the wind. Mr. Franklin, what did you think it was? The hound, of course. The hound of the Baskervilles. Any fool would know that. James, get my cape. Take me home. Very well, my dear. Dr. Watson, can I give you and Sir Henry a lift? No, thank you. We have our own carriage. You're trembling. That wasn't the wind we heard. I've heard that sound before, often. That's what I tried to tell you yesterday on the moor. That's why I wish you hadn't come here. But sounds can't hurt you. It doesn't matter what they are or where they come from. Oh, you don't know. Oh, you've got to get all that nonsense out of your head, Beryl. I wish I could. You're going to. I'm going to make it my business to see that you do. You've been alone too much. There's nothing to do down here. That's the trouble. I'm going to change all that, if you let me. We'll go fishing together, riding. You like riding? Yes, I do. Good. We'll start tomorrow, shall we? Yes, thanks. Fine. I'll ride over for you in the morning. Are you coming, Sir Henry? Right, Doctor. Good night. Good night. Beryl and Sir Henry decide to take a walk around the moor, and in true classic movie fashion, they quickly fall in love and become engaged. <laughs> However, the best part is when Watson shows up and he's tasked with keeping tabs on Sir Henry. And the reason is because we then get a Sherlock Holmes movie trope in which he is the master of disguise in addition to being a master detective. This time, he plays an old man. A fussle! A fussle for calling your sheepdog. Calling my what? Sheepdog, sir. A regular charmer, sir. <coughs> You're him for miles around, sir. <coughs> Take it away and yourself with it. I'll be some, some scent for the lady, sir. That'll do. Be off about your business. All right, all right, sir. I ain't doing no harm. I ain't doing no harm. You know, that's what I hate about this moor. There's always something strange. Look, he's limping on the other foot now. Watson then receives a mysterious note to come out to the moor into a cave. Watson does and is greeted by the same old man. Of course, it's Sherlock Holmes. Holmes gets plenty of amusement out of Watson being indignant about being tricked. Was it you who sent me that communication? I did, sir. Out with it. Whatever it is you want me to hear. I, I only want you to hear this zither, sir. Zither? He don't come no finer, sir. What blasted impertinence. Getting me out here to... Look here, my man. You're up to something. I, I only ask you to try him, sir. Be careful. This thing's loaded. Who are you? Well, I might ask the same of you, sir. Prowling around the moor, spying out on everybody. That's my business. To spy? Oh, what is, is it? Yes, and if you want to know who I am, I'll tell you. Who are ye? I'm Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes, the detective? Yes, and now perhaps you realize why I can't be hoodwinked. Oh, sir, 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 that changes everything. Now, who are you? Quick! Well, in that case, sir, my name must be Watson. 
<laughs> Holmes! How are you, my dear fellow? A fine detective you are, calling yourself Sherlock Holmes. So you've been down here on the moor all the time? That's a fine way to treat me, I must say. Send me down here. Let me think that you were in London, working on that black man case. Let me sit up half the night, writing those blasted reports. Serious reports, my dear, Watson, and very valuable they were, too. I made arrangements to have them forwarded on to me. A shabby trick, which I'll not forget. Ah, but a very necessary trick. If I'd come down here with you and Sir Henry, every movement of mine would have been watched. While in this way, only you and Sir Henry have been watched, and I've been free to work. That's all very well. But making a fool of me... Sit down, Watson. Do sit down. Perhaps a little supper will help you to get over your huff. Huff? I'm in no huff. Yeah, try some of these sardines. It's a pity I didn't know you were coming. I'd have provided a brace of pheasants. It's a pity you didn't think of bringing down that infernal violin of yours to regale me with some of your enchanting music. I did, my dear Watson. Anything to oblige. Well, if you've had enough to eat, Watson, and you're feeling in better spirits, I think we'd better be getting along. Getting along where, if I'm not praying? I'm returning with you to Baskerville Hall. There are still some gaps to be filled in, but all in all, things are becoming a little clearer. Not to me, I assure you. Still a hopeless jumble. Mr. Franklin, Dr. Mortimer, the Barrowmans, put it all together and what have you got? Murder, my dear Watson. Refined, cold-blooded murder. Murder? There's no doubt about it in my mind. Or perhaps I should say in my imagination. But that's where crimes are conceived and where they're solved. In the imagination. But there's been no murder. Unless you mean Sir Charles. And the facts clearly indicated that he died from heart failure. That's why so many murders remain unsolved, Watson. People will stick to facts, even though they prove nothing. Now, if we go beyond facts, Use our imagination as the criminal does. Imagine what might have happened and act upon it. As I've been trying to do in this case, we usually find ourselves justified. Then you know? Another day, two at the most, and I will know. My one fear is that the murderer will strike before we're ready. In that case... What's that? Where's it coming from? There. No, 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 there. Downed! Come on, Watson, quick! shot at the night we arrived. The man Barrowman was signaling to. Who is it? The Notting Hill murderer. He escaped from prison last month. Been hiding on the moor ever since. The Notting Hill murderer? Do you mean that he is responsible for all this? That remains to be seen. But he's wearing Sir Henry's clothes. Yes, yes, that accounts for it. Accounts for what? For the hound. These clothes were the cause of that poor devil's death. Do you mean that the hound was after Sir Henry? Yes, and mistook the convict for him because of the scent of the clothes. Do you remember that missing boot, Watson? Why do you suppose the brown one, the one that had never been worn, was so mysteriously replaced in the black one taken? Why? Because a boot that had never been worn wouldn't have had the scent of the owner, and the black one had. But how does this convict come to be wearing Sir Henry's clothes? Oh, well, that's simple enough. Why, Dr. Watson? Is somebody hurt? Who's this? The convict who escaped from Princeton. Oh, how terrible. I heard a cry. That's what brought me over here. What's your theory about it, Mr. Holmes? You're quick at identification. Oh, everybody knows you, sir. As a matter of fact, we've been expecting you down here. My name's Stapleton. How do you do? You came in time to see a tragedy. Yes. It's most unpleasant remembrance for me to take back to London tomorrow. Oh, must you go so soon? I've been looking forward to meeting you. Yes, yes, I'm afraid I must. Oh, we were hoping, Mr. Holmes, that you may be able to shed some light on the occurrences that have puzzled us down here. Yes, but an investigator needs something more than legends and rumors. Oh, quite so. Give me a hand, will you, Watson? We'd better put this poor fellow in one of the huts till the morning. Oh, let me give you a hand. Oh, I think we can manage all right, thank you.
Where's Sir Henry Barrowman? In the library, sir. Now, Barrowman, if your wife's still up, will you tell her Mr. Sherlock Holmes would like a word with her? Sherlock Holmes? Yes. Yes, sir. Thank you. All right, so this is where the plot really starts to play out. I could give you more, but that would spoil the fun if you've never seen or read this story before. Again, the Sherlock Holmes movies are ter really terrific with Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce. They're fun and they're quick to watch. And the interplay between Rathbone and Bruce is just terrific. And as kind of Leonard Maltin mentioned earlier, the end line, oh, Watson the Needle, they don't even try to hide the heroine storyline, which was prevalent in all of the Doyle novels. Now, if you don't mind, I've had rather a strenuous day. I, I think I'll turn in. Of course. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night, Mr. Holmes. Good night. Oh, Watson, the needle. All right, some quick fun facts. In the original novel and in all later film versions, the butler is named Barrymore. In this version, though, the butler was renamed Barry Mann since the famous Barrymore family, Lionel, Ethel, and John, were still acting in films at the time. So although Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce are the stars of the film, 20th Century Fox was actually unsure whether the film would be a hit or not. Therefore, Richard Green, who was already a well-established star, was given top billing, while Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce were billed as second and fourth. But after the massive box office success of this first film, Rathbone and Bruce received top billing in the 13 films which followed. All right, just like the film, this was fairly quick. I did have some longer uh, film clips in there, so that's okay. Uh, but we do have a great guest, and it is our resident go-to classic movie buff, and that is Joseph Staub, who gives a great analysis of this film. So enjoy that, and we'll be back next week for yet another episode of a random movie from my DVD collection. Okay, we're back with Joseph Staub. Welcome back, Joseph. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for having me back again. No problem. And I, I want to give a shout out to Joseph. I'm on his four part series with, with the great Ian Wadley uh, talking about the entire 24 movies of, of James Bond. And probably by the time it's fully released, I, I have a feeling that the latest James Bond will be out by then. I think the newest one comes out in, around the beginning of April. So probably, yeah, it'll be right around the time that comes out. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that'll be great. So definitely check out part one. That's that's up now. And I believe by the time this uh, podcast that we're talking about today comes out, I'm sure part two will be out as well. But today we're going to talk about the first Sherlock Holmes movie with Nigel Bruce and, of course, Basil Rathbone, and that is Hound of the Baskervilles. First, I want to ask, have you seen all 14 of the Basil Rathbone Sherlock Holmes movies? I have not. I've seen a good amount of them. I'm on a quest to watch all of them. I just picked them all up on DVD recently, so I'm going to, when things get a little bit more free for me, I'm going to sit down and watch all of them, but I, I have watched most of them. I think I've watched probably eight of them. Okay, awesome. They all follow a great formula. They're basically the same length of as, as like, you know, one TV episode, which is great. Uh, this is probably one of the longer ones, and even that's, I think this is only about 80 minutes long. Um, so when you what was did you see this first? Did you read the book? Have you read a lot of the Sherlock Holmes books? Like what is your introduction to kind of Sherlock Holmes in general? So the first uh, film adaptation of any Sherlock Holmes I remember seeing was the Hammer Horror Hound of the Baskervilles with uh, Peter Cushing and uh, Christopher Lee. Mm -hmm. uh, that was the first one I saw. That's one of my favorites. And then I came back and uh, found this one because it was right around the same time I was getting into a lot of the universal horror. So I mean. A lot of these actors I'm very familiar with from those films. I mean, Basil Rathbone, right. Lionel Atwell, John Carradine. They're all mainstays in the Universal Horror uh, sort of series. So I just jumped right in on this. And this was the first of the series of uh, Basil Rathbone, Sherlock Holmes's that I watched because right. uh, I was more familiar with this uh, book than any other Sherlock Holmes story. I have read a lot of the books. I have um, a big collection of most of the uh, Sherlock Holmes stories, and uh, last year at a class I took at my college, uh, it was a detective film and fiction class, we spent a good deal of time, we read this book, we watched this film adaptation, mm. and we watched uh, the episode of the series Sherlock with Benedict Cumberbatch. Oh, nice. It's an adaptation of this story, like, slightly more modern. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, I've, I've had a lot of experience with this particular film. Yeah, so what's great about the books now is you can pretty much get them for free on if you have a tablet because they're all in public domain. Yep, 
and I like the the collection I have of paperback. It's a big, it's a really thick book. I got it for like seven or eight dollars, and it's the entire collection. Oh, so. that's great. Yeah, I highly recommend if you're into like especially older older films. It's it's really worth checking out. They still uh, hold up well. If anything, they're a little bit darker because <laughs> it does get into his drug use and whatnot. Exactly. And speaking of that, they even kind of reference it. We'll jump right into the movie at the end. They do talk about drugs in this. Yes, they do. <laughs> it's <laughs> not something you would normally expect from a film that came out in 1930, uh, what, seven or eight? Um, yeah, 39. 39. Um, but yeah, uh, <laughs> some of the subject matter is a bit dark. <laughs> it is, but it's actually, I mean, because the ending, I wouldn't say it's cheery, but it's kind of like one of those typical like endings for like, a, you know, an older older type movie where it's you know, it's almost like a tv ending and you know like when they're all smiling at the end but then they basically says go get my did you say go get my needle or something like that or go get I, my spoon or something <laughs> uh some kind of something to take some kind of drugs i know uh in the books a lot he talks about opium and stuff right exactly exactly okay so we'll just get right into this H- how do you feel this the movie adaptation holds up compared to, one to the book at least i i think that this is actually a very faithful adaptation of the book um and especially I when we read this the novel and went right went right into this film adaptation, I think that really amplified what I think about this film and that it is very, very faithful to the book. I mean, from the different films I've seen, just from right from the opening scene where um, we meet Sherlock and Watson and Dr. Mortimer comes and visits them and they're sitting around in the den talking and the way that uh, the characters talk and what they talk about and what you see around the den of their of uh baker street i mean mm-hmm. it's very faithful to the the novel i i think that a lot of a lot of the film itself is faithful to the novel there's a couple couple small nitpicks about um just some of the characters i mean you can't you can't necessarily be completely faithful to all the characters in the book and i don't think right. they necessarily are but overall i think it's a as far as film adaptations go i think it's much more faithful than some other ones i mean I profess that I am a big fan of the Hammer Horror. Right. How the Baskervilles. That one is probably a little less faithful than this one. I mean, that one's really amping up the horror factor. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think of all the film adaptations I've seen of this particular story, this is probably the most faithful. Yeah, and it's definitely brisk. Like they they keep everything moving, just like uh, one of the the early horror films, which is great. Um, yeah. How did how did you feel? Uh, about the pacing of this and and also how did you feel that you didn't see a lot of Sherlock Holmes like really for of all the 14 movies this is, you probably see him the least in this film that's true and i think that's why i think it's really faithful to the book because i mean mm-hmm. in the book the entire middle section of the book it's just Dr. Watson's right. to Sherlock and you don't see him until the uh the whole plot starts to come unraveled because the entire time unknown to the audience Sherlock is investigating that's right using Watson as a diversion. Um, so I think that the way that the uh, movie is paced is, I think it's paced very well. I mean, it's 80 minutes long. It's a bit longer than some of the um, other Sherlock Holmes films and also a lot of the films at the time. I mean, if you look back at a lot of films going on at this time, especially the ones in like the universal horror cycle, they barely broke 70 minutes sometimes. Right. This one's, this one's right around 80 so still pretty short for uh, what we would think of nowadays, but I think it's paced very well. And like you said, even though Sherlock's missing from a good chunk of the film, I don't think that the film drags it all. I think the characters and the performances of the, the actors really keeps it moving. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then how did you feel about because this is also the first movie where you get to see him in disguise. And yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I think as because I really did see this as a kid. I th- I saw it in school. It was like uh, I think it was like a rainy day English class, like substitution type thing. And uh, so I was kind of I, I guess I was caught off guard when he was kind of dressed as the old man. How did you feel when you when you saw that? <laughs> I mean, having seen it much later in my life, I mean, I could see through it. Sure. Um, but, I mean, I, I it didn't catch me as off guard as much because I think, like I said, I think I read the book before I saw this particular adaptation. Mm it doesn't uh it definitely plays up the disguises more than the book does it's not nearly as a big part of the book as it is of the film right but i i think that it works well for what the film's trying to do uh i think that it, it they don't labor on it too much but i think it's an important part of the film mm-hmm now had you ever have you seen the robert downey jr versions and, and jude law 
I ha- I saw the first one. Okay, how did you feel about that? I, I think I thought it was a good movie for what it was. Um, yeah. I, I enjoyed the performances. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, it's not one of my more favorite movies, but I think I think for what it was, it was a it was a good movie. Okay. Yeah, because it's interesting how I wouldn't call home or sorry Watson you know bumbling or something like that. He's definitely, but he, he's definitely got kind of a sense more of a sense of humor than I think any other adaptation of Sherlock Holmes with with yeah. uh, Nigel with Nigel Bruce. Yeah, I would say so. I think that he's much more um, sort of characterized as the uh, sidekick who's always a bit behind. Yeah. I mean, you get that a little bit in the book where Sherlock's always having to explain a lot to Watson. But I think it – I don't think the book is ever meant to treat Watson as this sort of bumbling sidekick. Right. <laughs> I mean, he's a doctor. I mean, I, I think the, the film with Nigel Bruce – builds it up a little bit more than the book did. Yeah, but, definitely. But uh, I think that's just more for uh, just a variety in the characters than anything else. Right, and it's it's kind of a testament to how likable Nigel Bruce is. Like, he just kind of becomes that. And the same goes for uh, Basil Rathbone. He's he's actually very likable, but he's also very serious at the same time, which is which is pretty cool. I, I definitely agree with that, and I, I think I see that in a lot of his characters as yeah. well. He's able to switch it on when he needs to. He's a very likable, likable person, likable actor when he's playing these different characters. But also when he needs to switch it on and be serious, he does that very well as well. Right, right, absolutely. So what are the, what are the other things that you took away from this film, either when you first saw it or or where you're taking you know take it take taking from it now? That was easy for me to say. <laughs> yeah, um, I think one thing that always stood out to me about this film is the dialogue and how well um, structured the dialogue is for this film. Which I mean. Mm-hmm. Films in the 1930s weren't necessarily known for their dialogue. I mean, right. um, you're right. You're not even 10 years out of the uh, the, the silent era. Mm-hmm. You're still getting used to um, what a film can do. I mean, I know when we talked about Dracula, we talked about how that was uh, a little bit too far one way because there was no music behind it. There was no anything. It was just this dialogue that kind of labored on. Right. I, I think by this point, I think films started to get a little bit more aware of what they should and shouldn't do as far as dialogue. And the dialogue in this film really stood out to me I mean, because that's a that's a big part of the the Holmes books is the dialogue, especially back and forth between Holmes and Watson. Right. Or when Holmes or Watson are describing something. And in a book, you can get it in a certain way because you're sitting there reading it. So you can be reading a letter that someone wrote to someone else. But when you make a film of that, you can't necessarily do that in the same way. So I think the film handled that very well, especially when you consider that most of the middle section of the book is entirely uh, letters being written from Watson to Holmes. Right. Absolutely. And that's and that's the interesting part about a lot of these novels that were written, you know, pre turn of the century. The only form of entertainment you really had were books. And so to have a five, six hundred page book wasn't a big deal back then because it wasn't like you had radio. You didn't even have really vinyl records yet and definitely didn't have television. And, and movies were just kind of, you know, weren't even around yet. So um, it's interesting how they adapted these very wordy things uh that people i think were willing to even when when movies started they were willing to watch kind of a long even drawn out movie uh because they were used to to novels nowadays it's it's there's no way they could do that yeah and i think another thing that the film does very well is translating the atmosphere that the book creates yeah i think that and that's always something that would concern me uh, if i was adapting a book like that where a lot of the effect of the book deals with how it describes the settings and describes the situations. I mean, right away when you describe what it was like on the moor outside of Baskerville Hall yeah, and yeah. like fog rolling over and all this stuff. And I think the film does a beautiful job of portraying something that I, if I was in charge of doing an adaptation like this, I would find it very hard to portray. Right. Right. Now, how do you feel about the so-called villains in this? And do you think they're understated? Do you think it's kind of held back a little bit? And uh, yeah, how do you feel about them? Uh, I think that the uh, it definitely does what the book does, where it's building up the different characters as mm-hmm. could they be the villain? Could this person right. this person is suspicious? And because of that, I think at the for the good a good two thirds of the film. No one is very overstated because, I mean, you have, they're trying to build it up as anyone could have done this. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so you're not really getting one person 
overacting like you might in a movie where you know who the villain is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think by the end, you definitely get uh, more of a performance out of Stapleton. And I, I think that that performance is done very well. But I definitely think that there would be more uh, room for a bit more acting, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. It'd be interesting if this because I'm sure this was adapted to the stage at, at some point. So I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Any other thoughts about this, and what did you, and what would you take away from this? And of the ones you've seen, how does this rank in in all the Sherlock Holmes movies you've seen? I mean, of all the ones I've seen, this is probably up towards the top as one of my favorites. I mean, mm-hmm. just because it was the first one I ever saw, and because it was the most um, the story I was most familiar with. I, I think that this, along with the, just the film itself and the performances and the atmosphere that it creates, the dialogue. I think this is definitely one of my favorite of the uh, Basil Rathbone series that I've seen. I definitely want to sort of think about that more once I sit down and watch all of them. Okay. Uh, Because I'm sure some of the ones I've seen could be either towards the top or bottom of my list. But right now, this is definitely towards the top. Probably might even be my favorite of the series. Um, I definitely would recommend this to people if they're interested in detective stories or interested in Sherlock Holmes but have never seen any of the um, of the films in this particular series. Mm-hmm. I think they're very well done films. I think that they are very good adaptations of the source material. So if you're if you're very uh, passionate about films that are uh, good adaptations that can do that very well, I think this is definitely one of those films. So if you're a fan of the novel, I think this would definitely be something I would recommend for people to check out. Absolutely. I totally agree with uh, and also get the DVD set that holds all 14 yeah. movies because it's and also it's really cheap. It's really cheap now. I got it when it was expensive. I think it was like, you know, 50, 60 bucks when I first got it. Uh, I got but it, it, I think it was like 20, 20. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, definitely get them because it's worth it. And they're really faithfully restored. I mean, from UCLA. So it's it's really top notch. So I, I highly recommend every everyone get it. Any final thoughts? Um. Nope, I think um, I think that uh, about sums up what I think about this movie. I think it's a very good movie. Well, perfect. Well, since we have 13 more to go, I'm sure you're going to be back on again <laughs> soon. Thanks again. I'm excited. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Of course. Thank you for having me on. Hey, this is Brian Davis, and you might know me from the Damn Good Movie Memories podcast. And now get ready for the Bad Beat Show on ThatMetalStation.com from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. Eastern every Wednesday night. I'm going to play some kick-ass hard rock inspired by the blues, because after all, the foundation of all things rock and metal is, of course, the blues. So join me every Wednesday night for the bad beat, because even when you lose, you still win. We are officially on Spotify now, so if you don't use iTunes, if you don't use the Podbean app, you can go to Spotify and get all of our past episodes. You can stream it on there, so if you're a Spotify user, you can go find Damn Good Movie (laughs) I can't even say my own podcast. Damn Good Movie Memories. Yes, I know what I'm talking about. I'm the host, right? Okay, so go to Spotify, look for Damn Good Movie Memories. You can stream all of that stuff, and yeah, so if you don't want to use iTunes, you don't want to use Podbean, you can use Spotify as well. All right, before we sign off, we do have t-shirts are available for sale. All you have to do is go to tpublic, that's T-E-E-P-U-B-L-I-C.com, and you can get your very own Damn Good Movie Memories t-shirt. You can get all sizes, any gender, you can get whatever you want just at the tip of your fingers. So just go to tpublic.com, look up Damn Good Movie Memories, and you can get your very own t-shirt. If you enjoy this podcast and are an iTunes user, please do the show a favor and head on over to the official iTunes page for Damn Good Movie Memories. Be sure to leave a rating and a review. This will allow the show to appear higher in the algorithm and spread the joy of this podcast to the masses. If you are not an iTunes user, you can still listen and subscribe on Podbean at damngoodmoviememories.podbean.com. Be sure to like us on Facebook under our Damn Good Movie Memories page. You can also listen to a limited number of episodes on YouTube. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and be sure to tune in next week for an all new episode of Damn Good Movie Memories. I am Dr. Fuck. 
And I'm the actual alcoholic. And we are part of the Rock and Metal Combat Podcast. We are the Rock and Metal Combat Podcast. That's right. And the way you can check us out is we are on iTunes and also Podbeam. And we forgot a review recently. I got this review right here. It says right here, it says, Rock and Metal Combat Podcast is the greatest podcast in the world. And it's my number one podcast signed by Science. Now, and then Science also says... Science! Science also said, My second favorite podcast is It Doesn't Matter, The Rest Suck. Rock and Metal Combat Podcast on iTunes and Poppy. Check it out. Science! Are you ready for the hottest new podcast out there? Check out the Vieira Vault, featuring none other than Dr. Fuck Ralph Vieira. You will hear personal stories and personal songs from the vault. There ain't nothing else like it. The one, the only, the original Vieira Vault. On Podbean, Stitcher.com, and iTunes. Spreaker. God damn it. Hey, this is Stephen Michael from the Growing Up Rock Podcast. If you're like me and my co-host, Sonny Hollywood Pooney, you grew up loving hard rock and metal music. Check out our podcast where we talk to bands and artists that help create the soundtrack to our lives, along with playing some killer new and old deep tracks of kick-ass guitar-driven rock and roll. Find us wherever you find your podcast to listen to, that's the Growing Up Rock Podcast. G R O W I N U P R O C K. And feel free to hit us up at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Growing Up Rock. So sit back and crank it up. <laughs> 